0: Rugby Matrix America is brought to you by the USA Sevens International Rugby Tournament held February 11 and 12, 2012 at Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas. This is the number one tournament, rugby tournament in the United States. You've got to be there. It's a huge amount of fun. And if you want to get information about tickets or events or anything along those lines, check out USA7s.com. And also, Rugged Matrix America is brought to you by Rugby Imports. Go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby needs, whether you're talking about training equipment, team equipment and team kit, or just for yourself and your personal rugby needs. RugbyImports.com Welcome to Rugged Matrix America. Hi everybody, this is Alex Goff, editor in chief of rugbymag.com. Welcome, welcoming you back to another edition of our podcast show and we have with us the regular co hosts uh, Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean who are with us. And uh, and guys we're gearing up for we're gearing up for a big several weeks in the rugby world. Um, and how are you guys doing?
1: I'm doing great. But uh, yeah, these are big weeks coming up and and we'll talk about that a bit, and and then I think that we'll uh, we have a pretty interesting guest today that Pat was able to secure for us. So uh, let's see how Pat's doing over in in uh, tropical Kansas City.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm doing good, uh, recovering from the Kenny Chesney concert last night. Um, but it is pretty hot here, and and also in Kansas City, joining us is Brian Budzinski, um, a guy who uh, takes my money and lets me play sand volleyball at, uh, at his facility and indoor soccer at his facility, uh, every once in a while,
0: sand volleyball, well, you have no beaches, right? So it's going to be sand volleyball. It can't be beach volleyball, right? Uh, yes, well we will, uh, we are welcoming Brian Budzinski, uh, to the show and Brian is a, uh, very successful, uh, entrepreneur in Kansas city. He, uh, purchased the Kansas city soccer dome in the age of 24 and, uh, um, at the age of 26, he was the youngest proprietor of a sports clips haircuts franchise in the entire country. Uh, he is now the president of the Kansas City Comets, which is a professional indoor soccer team, which competes in the major indoor soccer league, the MISL. And um, and from 2007 to 2009, Brian owned and operated the Kansas City Kings, which is the premier arena soccer league. Um, and we are talking to Brian, not necessarily about soccer but we are talking to him about the professionalization of niche sports specifically rugby of course and um pat you've as you said you've known brian for uh you've known the work that brian has done for quite a while yeah and
2: brian also hosts uh what i think is the only indoor uh uh rugby tournament in the midwest and uh so he's he's kind to uh, us rugby folk and uh and and puts up with us So, uh, Brian, how, how are you and, and, and what's it like to be on a rugby podcast?
3: Um, things, things are good and I appreciate you guys having me on. And, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think rugby is a great sport. Uh, you know, I I follow the sport, you know, casually as a fan from the outside. Um, and then obviously I've got, uh, um, some relationships with some people that, uh, you know, that play the sport that are passionate about it. And I think it's, uh. I think, it's a, I think it's a great team sport, uh, and it's, you know, the athleticism and physicality of the, of the sport is, you know, it's fantastic, and that's why it's got such the rich history and tradition that it does have, you know.
2: Um, we should probably preface what the MISL is and a little bit more about the Kansas City Comets, just so people understand who Brian is and, and kind of the, the team he operates. Um, the MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League, is the top-level uh, of professional indoor soccer in North America. There are seven teams: one in Baltimore, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Wichita, Norfolk, Rochester, and Syracuse. Um, professional indoor soccer is—it's been around since the '70s, uh, 1978, in one form or another, one league or another. Um, and some of the current teams uh, have, have a pretty rich history. The Comets, you know, their origin dates back to 1979, as does uh, the Wichita Wings. Um, the Milwaukee Way was founded in 1984 and the Baltimore Blast in, in 19, 1980 um now these teams have obviously changed hands and, and, and Brian uh Brian is way too young to have been owning the uh the Comets in 1979 but he kind of uh along with uh, the other members of his ownership group um reawakened the Comets and uh, and and brought them back in 2010 can you just you know that's part of it is how did you come to the decision to to you wanted to own a professional sports franchise and and, and how do you, how do you get it together and, and how did the ownership group come together and and what was that process like and how long were you were you planning in
3: Well, you know, I mean, I you know, I would say it's it's a lot like, you know, I mean, the, the I think the reason you guys are having me on the phone, you know, talking about um, you know, a, a niche uh, or minor league um, not mainstream sports but on a professional level, you know, we kind of felt like our market, Kansas City had a void um, you know, in in the winter, uh, for, uh, for fans, sports fans specifically. And, uh, so we, we did our due diligence and, and research on the league and the, the brand, the product is a fantastic product. Um, got obviously a passion, um, you know, internally for the game of, of soccer and indoor soccer specifically. And so it, it just, uh, something where we put some time and research into it, spent a couple of years on it and, and, uh, you know, we, we launched last um, last July. We announced it to the public uh, at the Kansas City Sports Commission, uh, commission I should say, convention, and uh, uh, sold out home opener. You know, November 12th last year, and uh, it's it's received really well. You know, we uh, um, we averaged over 4,000 fans first year, uh, two sellouts, which was just under 6,000 fans. So it's it's um, something I had a passion for and it's also something that's uh it's it's grueling and uh puts a lot requires a lot of time and energy and and resources into it but um you know it's 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 a sport much like rugby that that has a loyal loyal fan base that is going to support um uh the sport itself uh regardless of kind of where it's at and that's that's kind of how we got into it, and, and that's why we're into it. And we look to, you know, stay here for a while and, and continue to build on it. So,
2: I think when people think about professional sports, they tend to think, well, you got to have TV rights. It's got to be, um, you know, in, in a huge stadium. You got to have twenty to thirty thousand people at a game. You know, I think that they don't understand that outside of the NFL, NBA, and and the other major sports leagues, that there are. Lots of ancillary professional leagues that are owned and operated, and 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 heck, even some of them turn a profit. Um, it, it, you know, you said you average four thousand fans. Um, just tell me a little bit about your what, what your what the model is for you. Obviously, it's butts and seats. You don't have television rights, so in order for you guys to make money, you've got to put butts in seats and seats. And and how you go about that, and, and uh, and just sort of what, just give us a in a nutshell what your model is
3: yeah no it's it's a good question and and you know today the, the things are things are different nowadays uh you you know t v you know major league soccer the m l s paid uh twenty to twenty five million dollars a year to e s p n paid it to e s p n for e s p n to to broadcast the games on t v and not until three years ago um did you know and you understand m l s launched in like nineteen ninety six so for almost you know fifteen years they they were paying uh, 20 to 25 million dollars a year to have espn broadcaster games and then finally uh two years ago uh, espn paid for the rights to mls because they knew they could get the advertising dollars to justify it so the times have changed a little bit in the aspect of you know we we broadcast all of our games online webcasting uh you can watch our games on your phone on your mobile device you got a mobile apps you know the 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 world's just changed to a little bit where TVs has some value, but, um, you know, TV and radio, the broadcast, it's, it's just not nearly as important as it used to be. Most people, you know, are, are internet based. Um, and if you can watch your phone on, you can watch a a game on your phone or on your computer, you're just as likely to do that as you are to watch it on your TV. So, um, you know, for us, that model and the way we were, it, 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 it fit in with what we were looking to do. Um, and we, you know we had huge numbers that would watch us online, um, and it was from all over the world that were watching the games. And so you know, I, I think, I think in, in, in this country, I think you know out east, you know there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, the major league lacrosse league is, is a sport that's the same kind of thing. There's the Eastern Hockey League, there's the Central Hockey League that plays here in the Midwest. Um, uh, there's all these minor league baseball teams that have, you know, existed for X amount of years. Uh, and so there's, there's obviously a need for these types of sports. And I think, I think rugby fits into that, that category as well, where it's, um, um, it, you don't need the TV. You don't need all of these things Is if you have the fan base and you market your product properly, keep your cost conservatives for your ownership groups, um, to be viable and stable. Um, that's really, that's really what the things is, is built about is making sure that that the model that the league sets uh, in place is, is viable for ownerships to have some rough times, but yet still stay stable uh, so they can see the fruits of their labor, um, you know, as things move on.
2: Um, Brian, I think, oh, Brian ahead, how many
1: cameras do you shoot off of when you do your webcasting? How much does it cost you to set up your web streaming? Uh, without, not talking about actually just setting up the operation and, and then my third question is the structure of the league. Do the league Does the league own the rights to the players and then you guys do it, like, or do you guys own the rights to the players and all that? Um, you know what I'm saying?
3: There's yeah. The two
1: different like, – yeah. yeah. Yeah, good, if good you just, okay.
3: The last question I would say is, you know, each team owns the individual rights to the players. Um, certain leagues, okay, the Arena Football League, for example – they own the players and they pay the players. Um, MLS, they own the players and pay the players. Our our league, the way we're set up, um, we're kind of s- similar to a lot of the hockey leagues that play. Um, we, you know, we all own our own players. Um, we also have the ability. Our our contracts are not guaranteed, so that means if you're if a, you sign a player and a player doesn't perform up to that standard that you're looking for, you can release that player and you're not liable for his contract. Which for a Niche sport, minor league professional sport, that's very good on the books um, because then you're not you're, you're not having to to get stuck on salaries for players that aren't playing on your team, um, and that that keeps your you, keeps your costs down. So that's that's kind of on the player side. And then, you know, uh, the the first question that you asked about, you know, production wise and TV wise, uh, or well, camera wise. You know, basically, we there's a company that that, that each each franchise has um, that their local arena uses. We have a company here uh, in in Kansas City that that we use, and uh, it's probably you know fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. It's four to five cameras, um, audio, and uh, you you take the same feed that is played inside at the arena is the same feed that gets played out. Online on the webcast, and then we have two people that do play-by-play uh, on our webcast, uh, and, and the 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 feed is called USL Live, is is the uh, actual medium, so to speak. Uh, people go to USL Live.com, they sign up for it, and they um, they can watch the game right there. So we do the play-by-play. Our people are in-house, and it's live, and it's the same feed that's being played into uh, the arena, and then when they're in the arena. On the scoreboard, so to speak, uh, if the fans are watching that, you know, you can kind of cut and change stuff out if you want inside versus what, what goes outside, as we call it, to the public. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the structure, each place is different, you know, but, but generally it's four to five cameras and there's a company that's in each market that handles it and it's, um, you know, fifteen hundred to three thousand
1: dollars per game. And I got a Uh. quick question on the cameras. Do you have cameramen operating the cameras or are they like stationary camera structures that can be, you know, like this camera's mounted on the east wall, this camera's mounted on the south wall, this camera's mounted there, and you may have a cameraman. I I was just, I was only asking because per per game cost with those, that that amount, it it seems relatively inexpensive um, if you, you know, as far as, If there are cameramen involved and, and, or, are they just, you know, guys that use volunteers or anything like that.
3: I only ask
1: for, for, um, our interest.
3: Yeah. That's a a good question. Um, out of like, for our games, for example, we have five cameras. Okay. Five camera angles, I should say. And one of those is a static angle that's up high. That's a, it's kind of placed in the corner and it overlooks the whole field. Um, so there's, there's there's one like that on one side of the field, and there's another diagonally across it on the other side of the field. So those those two feeds, both those are static at all times. They're up high, and they're kind of an overall picture. And then we have three actual cameramen that work um, the game themselves, and those are the guys that, 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 you know, they zoom in, they get close, and those are where your replays come and play um, and, and get the actual action um, that, that happens. And so, and then you have somebody that's in the booth that basically looks at the fees and decides what he wants to use, you know, and what angles for the, the replays and what's appropriate and, and, um, and how it goes. And it's, you know, if it, it, it sounds inexpensive, um, and it is inexpensive. It's, it's usually, uh, each venue has a deal with somebody. That's why it's that, that's why that rate is, is as low as it is. Cause each venue has, has a you know because that that company that comes in and does it whether in Kansas City it's Real Media or DSS, um, you know they 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 do all the events at that particular venue, so they can't charge. If if we just called them to do one thing, it'd probably be six eight ten thousand dollars. But since it's they get X amount of events at that arena, uh, the price is is down a little bit.
0: Brian, when you're starting a, a, a niche professional sporting enterprise, is there one thing that has to be the the, the first ingredient? And, and you know, we we just we just been talking about how uh, major television is is really not necessarily a must-have. But do you have to start with say money? Do you have to have someone who owns the team or runs the team who has a lot of money, and then we'll work on making the business model work, or does there have to be? Um, how much of a plan do you have to have in terms of saying we're going to get this percentage from sponsorship, this percentage from gate, this percentage from uh, you know other kinds of income uh, streams? Maybe maybe if it's, if it's if it's pay online video or whatever it is, if it, if it's you know texting. Uh, contests and other things that you can do to to get money what comes first is it is it just a a guy with a, a big bank account
2: well
3: you know i, I think i think it's, I mean, it's a good question i think it's a little bit of both i mean you have you have to have you got to have capital and don't have to have resources you know to to, to get the thing started because the the reality is a lot just goes out in the beginning <laughs> and nothing comes in so it's just you, you know, you start a team and you, it's great. You got a uniform and you got this and you got that and you got a phone number and a fancy website. Well, the reality Is you don't have any revenue coming in, you know, and you're not going to have any revenue coming. If you launch a team with a proper timeline, you're going to have four months where you don't bring a dollar in. Um, and that's, that's kind of, um, you know, that's, that's, so you, you have to have somebody that, that, that has some sort of pockets and then, but but you also have to have obviously a budget, a game plan, a model you know that's that's set up um, so that you can succeed properly you know and and that's um, that's kind of where we're at we're on our second year right now um, and so you know for us we had a lot of money that went out uh, in the beginning we have three owners involved in our in our our team um, you know and and our club is is structured so that uh, we knew there'd be a lot going out and now we're at the phase of Um, you, you make your money on your tickets and your concessions and you make your money on your merchandise. If you do merchandise, you make your money on your sponsorships. Um, and so now you you almost look at it like a stock or an investment. You put a bunch in for it and it gets started. And then now it's your job as a, as an owner to go out and make sure your model is perfected for your market. And you get your number as close to your break-even number, and then as soon as you get to that number, then you should exist from there on out. You know, and so that's—it's—it's it's a little bit of both. I, I think you need resources to get it started, uh, but then once you get the resources, you got to obviously have a really good game plan because it takes a while for those revenue streams to come in. Uh, once they do come in, you know, then then it's—it's it's matter of making sure your model's perfected um, to get close to to, to that break-even number
2: what um your break even number is obviously going to be different than what say other rugby teams cuz your your overheads all different and the way you decide to put your team together is all different but when you talk about how many fans you need to have in an arena you average over 4000 um i'm guessing you probably sat down and wrote a number and circled it and said we really need to get to this number was there a number that you came up with uh, of people at each game that you felt if you did that you would be all right either break even or make a little bit of money
3: yeah, we. I mean, when we when we put the business model together, we for us in our market with what our average ticket price was going to be, um, we you know our number was three thousand was our break even number. Our goal as a, as a club was thirty five hundred, um, and we obviously exceeded it with forty one hundred, um, and that that was great. Um, now this is and this is how you know this is how business works and this is how sports works. We put that number in place. Um, thinking that our sponsorship dollars would be at a certain minimum number. It did not hit that minimum number. So in reality, our tickets revenue, even though it was higher and better than expectations, it all it did was pick up the slack on the sponsorship side. And that's, that's the part of, you know, with the question, you know, that was, was asked earlier, you know, about, you know, with the, the, the having the ownership dollars in place and a plan in place, we had a plan, we had a great plan. We still didn't execute the plan. And so our resources had to kind of be able to get us through those, those rocky waters there to where we needed to be. Um, And that's, that's, that's the thing. You can set your plans and everything that you want, but as uh, something's always going to happen that you didn't plan for, something's always going to cost more than what you thought it was. Something's always going to cost less than what you thought, you know, everything you put in place until you get through it for a whole year a whole, a whole cycle. And this has been with every business I've had. There's always a bunch of unexpected cost that you can't plan for. Cause you've just never done it before. And no matter how many people have done it before you, there's, there's still things that, 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 that come unplanned.
0: Um, All right. What are your
3: ticket prices? Um, yeah, it's a good question. We, our, our cheapest ticket, um, is $8, $8 to get in the game. Our most expensive is $40. Um, $8 tickets, it's a game day only ticket. There's only 40 of them available. You, so you can only buy them the day of the game. They're usually sold out by 11 a.m. that day. Um, game, our games, we play Friday nights and Saturdays at 7.30, Sundays at 3. Um, so those those tickets are gone fairly, fairly early in the day. Um, our, our cheapest price on a ticket That you can buy regularly is is a 12, was a $12 ticket last year. We've increased that to 13 this year. And, um, and then you have obviously your group pricing structure, uh, depending on the amount of number of groups, uh, that come, they can get that $13 ticket all the way down to $11. Um, and, uh, and then you get seats all the way up to 40 bucks, which puts you right on, right on the front row. Um, you know, no glass there's just the, the the dasher boards your traditional hockey dasher boards all the way around and so the action is right in front of your face and you get the blood sweat and tears you get it all on you and you get to see it and smell it and feel it right right then and there and that's that's really what sells sells the game you know um,
2: how many games do you
3: play play uh, 24 games 12 home uh, 12 on a road
2: and we do I think need some a couple other numbers to really paint the whole picture you know what what's the highest salary maybe that you pay your players what's the lowest that a player gets can you explain us how you play the players because it's obviously a large part of the equation
3: yeah i mean for for us you 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 got guys all over the all over the map um you got a, a rookie you make 500 bucks a month that's it you can have a guy that's uh you know that's making forty thousand fifty thousand dollars a year um you know, from one capacity all the way, you know, to the other. Um, So when you break it out per month, you know, our season's six-month season long. You know, you could have a guy that makes, you know, six, seven, eight, ten grand a month depending on what his level of play is.
0: Do you uh, expect more out of these higher-paid players? Are they expected to do more appearances, more promotional things for your team? Yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, well,
3: we yeah, well, we, the way we set the thing up is we tell the guys is um, if you're going to play, if you're going to be a, a member of the Comets organization, you've got practice from you know nine to eleven thirty every day and and all this, but your job doesn't stop there. We're a community-minded organization. You're going to be out in the community. So what you get paid that's only for three hours of work. You still get another five hours that day you got to do. Um, and if we have it set up for them, our staff. Um, they'll go and do community things they'll do player appearances they'll go speak at schools we'll, they'll be out everywhere all over the place and that's that's part of that's our model. Uh, we don't pay players to do appearances that's required that's part of being a member of our, our club um, and but then also the flexibility we have is is if a player That's a higher played player that we need to rely on. If he's not performing at the level, then we have the ability to release that player and we don't have to worry about, you know, handling his contract anymore.
0: Now with, with these players becoming professional, and and I think that in soccer, it's probably going to be different than in rugby where you've had players playing an amateur game for, for years and, and practicing two days a week that they normally do. And, and to, the the story has always been when when rugby's gone when rugby went professional uh players in the the countries where it went professional just figured they would do what they normally did they just got paid for it and it was a bit of a shock to the system to everybody to find out that really they were now expected to do more uh with the, with the soccer players is, is there an education that's required on some of these players to tell them what it takes to be a professional athlete Uh, how hard they work, how they, um, you know, how they have to take care of their body, how how they have to eat. And, and even as you said, um, be, they're not sitting in front of the TV the rest of the day that they're, they're out doing something for the team and, and, and thinking about being a professional athlete in the, in the sense that um, you have to do something for this professional team to help it, help it main, you know, help it make money.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a good question to ask because we, because our guys, you know, it's, it's a niche sport. So a lot of our guys, there's, you know, the, the salaries I told you for the higher end guys, you know, there's probably only five, six guys that do that. You know, the bulk of the guys, you know, make between, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month to thirty eight hundred dollars, you know, four thousand a month, five thousand, you know, somewhere around there. So um, what you what you have is you have guys that that that, you know. They're either they're what we call a, a full-time player, which means they play six months for us, and then they'll play six months outdoor. Which for rugby you wouldn't have that, um, where you can go for two completely separate leagues and you make money for one playing indoors for half the year and the other half. So yeah, we we have to educate the guys. Um, I mean, we set up everything from strength and conditioning coach to um, at, you know agility training to. Um, we, we have a meeting in the very beginning of the year we set them up with the people that that is uh, one of our sponsors uh, and they talk about life planning and, and putting money away while you're getting money and, and all all of these types of things but a lot of the guys have to have second jobs um, you know not you know when I call the, the second tier or third tier guys they got to have another 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 source of income um, especially if they have families and that's that's where I really think you know the, the similarities from you know, rugby being professional, uh, major league lacrosse, uh, arena football league, uh, the MISL, uh, and these hockey leagues. I, that's where I think, that's where I think the rugby, um, fits in is, is you're gonna need to have guys that, that, that are gonna be one, they're gonna be younger guys, okay, because they're right out of college, um, they're not quite settled down yet. And so they'll be able to spend the amount of time that each club kind of requires, um, and then two, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have to have guys that that um, have the so so-called passion to play the sport, despite the amount of income they're making versus the amount of hours they're having to put into it because they're building something, and everybody I think has this mindset of, you know. Once we build something, it's not really for us. It's for the guys behind us. It's for the league after us. It's for the next, and, the, and so I think if, if 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 it was done properly um, in the states, you know, I think that's how rugby would start, um, and and then it would kind of build, so to speak, uh, you know, from that that groundwork there. And you you set all the communications with the guys, and everybody understands what they are and where they're at and what their uh, what their purpose is. Um, and this this thing is bigger than them individually. It's a league as a whole. It's a sport as a whole. It's a brand as a whole.
0: Yeah, it's easy to forget that uh, in the major sports, baseball and football and basketball, hockey, that, that players for years, decades, had off-season jobs to augment their income. It was really only the major stars who made a lot of money, and most of them needed some other kind of source of income off-season. And uh, And they built that. They built that sports to the point where now obviously average salaries are, are in the millions and, uh, and you know, that's, you, it's got, you got to start somewhere. I got a two-parter for you, but um, there's been
2: indoor soccer, as I said, since the seventies, professional indoor soccer in the States, but leagues have come and gone. They've folded, been brought back. You know, the Comets is an example of a team that's, that's folded and been brought back. Um, you know, where have, where have those other leagues failed? Um, where you you know you obviously you look at their mistakes and you try to rectify them or not make them again. Where where have the other leaks failed? And and the other part of that question is, being that there is a lot of failure to be honest, it, teams that have gone defunct. And like I said, how hard is it con- to convince somebody that no, this can work, even though it hasn't worked in the past. This can work, be it sponsors, other you know, getting somebody in your ownership group, and or getting people on board with the uh, the uh, viability of indoor soccer.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, it, uh, I think it always boils down to the same thing, uh, honestly. Of why every every um, why the professional indoor teams folded. It's why the Arena Football League team folded for two years. Uh, players' salaries got too high in relation to revenue streams. It's just plain and simple. Um, you know, you had guys back in the 1980s that played professional indoor soccer that made more than guys that play in the MLS right now Um, there's only so many dollars that you can generate from a you only have so many seats that you can fill you can charge only a certain price point until you start turning off your fan base you can only get X amount of dollars on sponsorships because there's only so much inventory there's only so much that you can bring in Um, and so that gap got too wide and it and it does in a lot of sports. Arena football league, you know, had to go dark for two years. Um, it's it, it, it's the player's salaries got out of whack with what was brought in, and I think that's where you know even if you look with the major sports, the NHL and the NBA. The NBA is right now the 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 reason the NBA lockout and the reason things have to change a bunch is there's only X amount of dollars they can get in those those arenas, um, and those guys the salaries the player salaries are are out of whack of that number that's um, so that's that's what I think most of the problems have been is the players' salaries have have gotten that no the number's gotten too high um, and then the second thing is when it you you know boils down to well, your question was 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 selling somebody or or you know a franchise, a prospective franchisee you know on the on the team I, I really think it boils down to what kind of model makes sense, who wants to stick to the model, and if they can stick to the model, and does that fit into their their net number, their dollars that they're willing to, to contribute to it, then, you know, you have you have like with us, you know, the Baltimore Blast, you know, same guy that's owned the team for 20-something years. They've been successful. Milwaukee Wave, same guy that's owned the team for 18-plus years. Um, and then you, you have it in all the sports. But that challenge is, has, has hit a lot of the major sports, over the years. Um, and and the difference is there's only room in this country, I feel like, for, you know, NHL took a big hit. There's really the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and then there's that next level below those three. And that's where your NHL is. And then MLS is right behind the NHL. And it's taken a lot of money um, from and Schutz Entertainment Group, the largest, you know, uh, sports entertainment, you know, company in, in the world, um, had to own four or five of the MLS franchises for X number of years to to make sure that that product stayed stable. Or you have Lamar Hunt, who owned three MLS teams, um, you know, you have Kansas City, Columbus, and um, I think it was Colorado was the third. He owned three three MLS teams. Um, so you have to have people with really deep pockets to be able to withstand the build and the growth of it. Um, and, it's, it's, and, I, and I think on our niche side, what we're talking about here with, with you guys today and, and where we're at is keeping your cost under control, keeping you know, the players' cost under control, understanding your venue and your, your sport, keeping the overall league cost down and you know, and putting a proper model in place. That's going to be attractive to anybody anywhere if your Brian, model, you know, is is, is proper.
0: Brian, uh, speaking to that, and I'm going to guess why that is that sometimes these salaries go out of control, especially on the smaller sports, um, it, it, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but but it seems to me that, that sometimes you have an owner or, or somebody running a team who says, you know what, we can win right now. If we spend a lot of money right now, we can win now, get all these, these great players, and then we, we'll be champions, and then we'll build we'll build the team from that by being champions. Um, and it, it just seems to me that, that can be – you can always have somebody jump in and say, with a short-term view, I'm going to throw money at it right now and win.
3: Yeah, it's uh... – your point is, is is well. I mean, that, that's a that's a great observation that you made, and that cause that that happens all the time. Um, and and for what we tell our coaching staff here in Kansas City and our players and our our staff, winning to us means being here for five years. That's what winning means. Not winning a championship in two years. You know, winning on the field will be a byproduct of winning as an organization. Um, and I think, you know, obviously winning draws fans. That's, that's period. That's understood. Um, we, you know, our, our club this last year, we were at one point, we were four and 11 in our, we went from selling a place out twice, four and 11, um, not even close to making the playoffs. And, uh, um, you know, we, we, we saw a drop in attendance at that point, you know, and it's, it's, it, winning is, is it brings some fans in, but it doesn't. Winning's not as important as a quality product, uh, quality presentation, customer service, uh, atmosphere, experience. Um, you do all those other things right, and then winning on the field will come from it. And uh, I think a lot of guys fall into that trap. We're like, well, we're you know we're going to win right now. Winning right now gets you out of your model. You get out of your model. Um, depending on what your pockets are, and for a lot of people, there's not a big enough margin in their uh, as far as their resources that they can put into these teams. That's that's how they get in trouble. So it's a great observation,
2: Brian. There are there are a lot of guys with money in American rugby. You mentioned some of your you know, the, the guys from Baltimore and Wichita um, that have owned their teams for a long time. There are guys in, in the American rugby community that have deep pockets and that throw a lot of money at certain clubs and, and that sort of thing um is there do you find that now baltimore and wichita obviously specifically but what kind of guy decides he wants to own uh is there a pattern of what type of person wants to jump into in this league or or into professional indoor soccer or into that does it have to be a guy that you know played indoor soccer for a long time or played college soccer that was really really passionate about it or 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 are there guys that get into it just because they think it it, it makes good business sense that necessarily aren't soccer guys. Is there a pattern of the type of person that wants to own a franchise?
3: I would actually say we are, and the Rochester New York club and the Syracuse New York club. Uh, we are out of the seven teams in our, our uh, league, only three of them are soccer people. So the guy, the guy that the gentleman owns the team in Baltimore, he owns a bank. He never played soccer a day in his life. Uh, the gentleman that owns the team in Milwaukee, owns a cable company, never played soccer day in his life a football guy, Big Ten guy. Uh gentleman that owns the team in Wichita, owns an oil company, never played soccer day in his life, doesn't even hardly, you know, know the rules, the difference between indoor and outdoor soccer. Um, it's purely business for these guys. It's so obviously a passion. You know, owning a professional sports franchise is, is you know, is on the, the radar of, of everybody. I think every guy in the – you know, in this country, you know, would love to to own and run a professional sports franchise. So it's, but it's, it's business for those types of guys. It's purely business. It's, it's, it's numbers and models and does it make sense? And, um, and I, I, I think the same thing for, for rugby. I think you'll have guys. I think what you would have is you'd have, you'd have guys that are, that are committed and passionate about the sport. And those guys will go find other guys that have money that, and they'll share their passion for it. And, and and that's where you'll find your your owners. You know, is the reason that the gentleman, uh, Mr. Hartman, that, that bought the Wichita Wings was because there was such a groundswell in Wichita to put a team there, and everybody kept going to him. And finally, he said, Yeah, I want to do it. And that's why. Um, and I I'd, I'd say the same would be the, the case for for
2: rugby. You mentioned Rochester and Syracuse. Uh, you know, these are. It's funny that in the league you can have, it sounds weird that you can have Kansas City, Milwaukee, Baltimore in the same league as Rochester,
0: Syracuse, North. Hey, North. hey, stop running down Rochester.
2: <laughs> but with small market, big market, I mean obviously we're not dealing with TV and homes, so I think that a little bit of that goes out of the window. But what are the different considerations for, say, a team in Rochester versus a team in Milwaukee?
3: Um, well, you know, I mean it's it's – uh, I mean, every place, every place is different and every place is unique. I mean, I, I would say out of all of our places, obviously Baltimore is probably the biggest market. Um, you know, uh, Milwaukee is a small market. Uh, Kansas city is a small market, which you know, smaller the two. I'd say Syracuse is, you know, is pretty small. Rochester is a little bit bigger, but you know, um, I, 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 every, every place has challenges and, and unique uh, uniquenesses to, to, to its, its market. And I, I honestly think, um, uh, if, if the ownership groups do what they're supposed to do, they'll be fine. I mean, we have, you have for the championship game, Baltimore hosted it, they put 11,000 people in their, in their place, uh, for the championship game. Uh, we, we in Kansas City play in the third smallest arena. Now it's the newest arena of all of them, but we play in the third smallest arena, um, of all the markets. It just, it, every place, you know, has their differences and their challenges um, but i don't I don't think that there's anything um, that 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 can keep one place from having a team versus another if the ownership place uh, is in place and it's proper and then the marketing and the p r and and the branding and all these all the costs are in line every you know Syracuse will do fantastic they're playing in a place called war Memorial and uh, yeah I think it's like a five thousand seat arena and it's been around forever, you know, forty, fifty years. It's got great his- history. I think they'll do great there because the guy that 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 owns the team has a passion for for soccer, but he hired a bunch of business people. Um, so every every place has got uniqueness and challenges, and it's just a matter of the ownership groups sticking to their model and, and doing the business properly.
1: I, there's a team called the Queensland Reds and, and who just won the Super Fifteen in uh, in rugby and. What they do after the game is that the players stay around at the field as long as it takes to sign all the autographs that they have to sign. Do you guys do that after a game? Is
3: that we, we do that... we, we do, do that. We we stole that idea from the Arena Football League team that did that here in Kansas City. Uh, went to the game. I know their ownership real well. I thought it was a great thing. You'd have 2,000 kids lined up to get an autograph after the game. We Our players are – as soon as the game gets done, win or lose, they go back to the locker rooms they have their conversation with coach um, and uh, and then they come back out on the fields uh, and then our cheerleaders come back on the fields we set the you know the tables up and we've got the line going, and you know have a thousand thousand people waiting in line to to get autographs and get on the field and it's a great it's a great way to get the fans connected with the players and I think Every niche sport, the players need to, they need to have that connection with the fans and the kids, uh, and the kids need to identify with it um, And individually for each type of a player. So I, I think uh, getting that interaction is,
1: is, is really, really important. I got one quick question to follow up on that. Does Pat Clifton get autographs from the cheerleaders or phone numbers? I think he's getting phone numbers. Yeah, I I I don't know when the last time is, you know, you've you've chatted with Pat,
3: but I don't I don't think Pat's getting any phone numbers to be honest with you. Oh, I think Pat's getting lot.
1: Pat Pat's a you know, he's oh, a secretive lover. Secretive burn. lover. He's getting phone numbers.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, right. good stuff. Um Brian, a couple of uh, real quick questions. Um uh who owns the venue? Uh,
3: uh the uh, the city of 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 Independence it owns the venue and it's managed by a company called Global Spectrum, which manages arenas all over the country.
0: And most MISL teams rent rent this time for the venue. Correct. Right. Okay. All
3: of them. All of them do. Oh, except for Wichita. The, the gentleman that 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 owns the Wichita team also owns the arena.
0: Right. And these arenas. So that, that's
3: very rare. And very, these very,
0: these arenas are almost always. I mean, must be you know hockey slash basketball arenas. Mostly minor league.
3: Yeah, you can you can play. I mean, you you could play uh, basketball. You can have a you know you know we'll, we'll play on a Saturday night. Blake Shelton's playing on Friday night at the That's arena. I mean, they're they're all yeah multi-purpose.
0: Yeah, like the the arena of the wonderful Rochester Americans hockey team. Um, a number of players on a on a roster. And ha- actually educate me how many are playing on the field at one time.
3: Yeah, there's there's 18 total guys you can have under contract. Uh, you can have four injured reserve spots, so technically you can have 21 players um, under contract if, if with injuries, if your if your documentation is all proper, uh, and 15 dress per game, and you know six are on the field at a time. There's five field players and one goalkeeper. Okay.
0: And how many uh, are in your coaching staff or in most teams' coaching staff?
3: Um, you know, we've got um, we've got three coaches, we've got a head coach and then we've got uh, two assistant coaches. Um, we're adding a strength and conditioning coach for this year. Um, and, uh, you know, now then we also kind of classify our trainers um, and our medical staff as our coaches. And so we've got, you know, we've got an orthopedic surgeon, we've got a physical therapist, we've got an assistant physical therapist, we've got a head athletic trainer. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a general practitioner. We've, you know, we've got a chiropractor, we've got a dentist, um, so all, all, you know, all of these facets are all, you know, they're all part of the coaching staff, so to speak, but really it's, it's one head coach and two assistant coaches.
0: Right. So that was my next one was how many ha, staff you've got, you've got some others. You probably ha, also have, uh, uh, do you have a, you've got a locker room manager and, you know,
3: towel. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, what we do is our, our athletic trainer has, you know, there's basically an assistant athletic trainer. And so they handle all the, you know, for us, they handle all the equipment and okay. everything. All right,
0: the and these and, and uh, are are of the all those staff, coaches and and support staff, um, how many are are full time paid and how many are just uh, paid say per game?
3: Yeah, just just our head coach is full time year round. Uh, our assistant kind of head coach is is compensated you know uh, year round on a smaller basis, but everybody else is seasonal only. Okay. Uh, and then now. But so, all those you know other things—I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But the other, uh-huh. the, the medical staff; those are all part of some sort of sponsorship package. Okay.
0: Okay. And then, Alex,
1: I, Alex, I got a question. I'm, I want to follow in on yeah. what you're doing. You're, you're going go ahead. How do you guys? How do you guys deal with workers' comp, unemployment, um, you know, payroll taxes, and all that stuff? Is everybody an independent contractor, 1099? Are they employees of your company? How does that? That's a, cause, it's a great cause question. I think that's really. always been a, that's always been a real question is to the you know the quote unquote oh, it's so easy the hidden costs of actually having a team, medical insurance and that crap, since they are seasonal, it, it becomes you know, it becomes kinda difficult to uh yeah, put all that together. Yeah, it's it's uh that is it's
3: great, man. It's a great question. That that is a huge number that you that nobody wants to, to deal with and nobody puts it on their paper the right way. And it's uh workers comp, you have to have it for the guys. Everybody, every team uh, has to have workers' compensation. Um, None of our guys have health insurance, so to speak, because they all have workers' compensation. Because if they get injured, um, they have to be able to have some sort of income when the season ends because they can't go and play or go and work at another job, just like if they were, you know, building cars at a factory plant um, and they, you know, broke their hand, they can't go back and work at the plant until the hand's healed. You know, same philosophy.
1: So – yeah, you've got workers' i got comp. a quick question on that. What is your, as a professional athlete, what is your rate per hundred for workers' comp?
0: So essentially uh, every...
1: how workers' comp works for, I just, for everybody who doesn't understand, is that every dollar that you pay somebody, you have to pay a percentage of that in in workers' compensation insurance. So for somebody who, say, is a, is a construction worker, that could be 17% of their salary. For somebody like in my business, who's a security guard, it's three and change to four percent of their salary. So it's it, it, it is a it's a weird it's a weird thing. But what is it for a soccer player? I'm sorry. Yeah,
3: that's no, it's bros. That's that's very stupid. Man. Um, yeah, every state, as you know, every state has a different price. Okay, so every or I yep. call a mod rate moderation rate. Every state has a different yep. one. Um, Missouri's one of the highest in the country. Forty-seven cents. Oof. Forty-seven cents. So if you make a hundred dollars, I got to pay forty forty-seven dollars for you to be covered on workers' comp in the state of Missouri. Now, the longer we exist, that number will go down, but that number will never go below
1: thirty-five well, percent. Well, what that how that works is you get an experience modification. You can either pay one hundred percent of it. They really don't go down too much below eighty-five percent, and they can go up as high as they want. You can get 140 percent of it, but so, as a soccer player, you're looking at almost fifty percent extra in the salary as a rugby right. player. It could possibly be quite higher. It could be in the sixty to seventy five percent so, if you pay a guy you know legally pay a guy under a contract a thousand dollars a week that could that thousand dollars cost you seventeen hundred and fifty with that, and then you're really looking at another x amount x amount of percent from for payroll taxes and the other so that they'll add another probably 130 bucks on top of that thousand. So you're looking at almost doubling your cost of wages. So that's how come I, I always say when people think a professional league is so easy to put together, it's not quite that easy. Yeah, that's, it's, that's, it's very, and that's just, the main
3: reason. <laughs> yeah, it's very stupid what you're saying. And that's, and, and this is a, a problem that we faced that, for example, Baltimore doesn't even have workers' comp for the, that's not, man, it's not, the state doesn't require it, so the rate is for the for the same guys up there. They're paying 13 cents for every every dollar, um, and it's it's an individ- Each state has different regulations, and just so happens Missouri is one of the highest ones in the in the country because it's it depends on if your workers comp goes through your state, if your state makes it a a, a mandatory, um, and it's it, so yeah. each market has a different it has
1: a huge Hinge. different number. In New York, that's, that's how it is too. You, and every single classification of business from a clerical person to a lawyer to a, to a doctor to different types, of, everybody has a different classification. Lifeguards, uh, food workers, everybody. So it, it, and, and then at the end of the year you get audited to, to sort it all out. It's, but it is a major, major cost and I think it's something that a lot of people don't necessarily look at, um, When when they're making a model of building the league, that's that's for that's for certain.
0: Well, that's good. That's Uh a that's a that no that's a that's a great point. Um, I just uh, one of the other things I was looking at is something you go to the fan side, which is um, we talked about cost of tickets. What about cost of concessions? And it's a it's an ongoing complaint by fans for who who go to any sporting venue that say uh, you know a beer is actually a beer is cheap at eight dollars and and could be 950 ten bucks a hot dog is 750 something like that um, because they, they've got a captive audience the one of the many problems people have with major professional sports is that they the the tickets cost a lot they go there and then everything costs a lot and and you feel like you're being you're being sucked dry and to try and take you know uh, you know two adults and two kids to a baseball game or or a football game is, uh, I mean, it's cost prohibitive. Oh, this is where Brian and his group has figured it out because
2: you can go to a Comets game and get you a yard beer for a relatively uh, good price.
3: Well, you know what, we, you know, each, again, it's, it's, each venue is different. You know, each market is different, but like just for us, for example, something that we do, we do what's called a door busters special. And we have to work with our arena and you have to get a little bit of a sponsor to help out to reduce the cost on it. But we essentially provide a happy hour. Before the games, so if you have a game that starts at 7:35 from six to seven, we want we want people in the place earlier, okay? For us, we want the we want the we want the we want more people in the in the venue before you know well before the game starts. So we sell two dollar beers from six to seven dollar hot dogs, two dollar nachos, uh, two fifty I think cheeseburgers is what the the the, the staff does there, and so. We want people in there from six. To, we want people in there from six to seven, and and what we've seen from a, a standpoint is our fans. They come in and have two, three beers, you know, and a hot dog, cheeseburger, from that six to seven time frame, and then they only have one or two more beers for the rest of the game, you know, at the five dollar, six dollar, seven, whatever the rate. I don't know what it is, but um, we we did that to encourage to get people in earlier. Um, and it's it worked really well. And then so for us, from a production standpoint to our sponsors, you know, our, our stands are full early, very early, you know, where a lot of venues aren't like that because they're coming in, they're walking in right at um, right at game time. Um, and so they get to see all the pregame festivities, you know, your National Guard or uh, the National Anthem, you know, God bless them, you know, all these things. Everybody gets to see this, and, we, you know, it just feels like it makes the production a little bit better.
0: That's that's well, that,
1: great. You're, that's a fantastic idea, Pat. We got to go to one of those games. Yeah, I could I could I could I could I could buy you the beers I owe you for all my bad predictions at two dollars a pop.
0: <laughs> okay, well we have we, covered an awful lot from workers' comp to the price of beer, and uh, Brian, I I don't know if you have one last all-encompassing message for the sport of rugby uh, when we talk about trying to market and professionalize a niche sport.
3: Uh, you know I, I I just would say I think it's a great sport and I think there's I think there's a market for it I think um, there needs to be some sort of governing body that 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 gets some some sort of plan set in place um, and some stipulations with the league uh, and and puts puts the product out whether it's you know i I know you guys you know you've got the full field the outdoor aspect I love the sevens idea personally that's just my from a business perspective I like sevens I think uh, Guys smashing each other inside an arena this is fantastic. Um, where fans can really get up close and see it, I think would do well. Um, so I, I I think it's I think it's you know I think it has a future and I'd I'd love to see it and I'd I know I'd be a guy that would be willing to to pay to go watch a professional rugby match. Um, you know if it was played here in the states.
0: Wonderful. Well, Brian Brzezinski, thank you very much for being on Rugby Matrix and thanks to uh, Pat for. Getting you to come on and uh, take care of our boy there in uh, in Kansas City. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later, Brad. It's great.
1: Thanks a lot, Brian.
0: All right, guys. Well, <laughs> that that covered a lot of interesting stuff, and I I think you know that there are so many notes to to take on that. But I think that um, one of the messages that came to me first of all, you have to have a business plan. Uh, over and above let's get a rich guy to finance a team second of all bruce you're so right about all the hidden costs about employment um and and hidden costs that vary from state to state and then also the idea of when you pay someone how much do you pay them over what time we're we're not going to snap our fingers professionalize quote-unquote a game and then say that everybody is making 50 grand a year um, or make you know whatever uh, enough for a young person to not have to have another job uh, pro- to professionalize rugby. Uh, um, it'll be a part-time professionalization for a very long time.
1: I mean, I, I think that it's professional. Professional is an attitude, and, 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 and right now we we don't have a we don't have a way to monetize or profit on on rugby. And and I think that you you saw it at the the USA sevens and the, and the uh, college sevens uh, CRC championship that it's taken an, an enormous amount of time to even get too close to break even at, at, at those, at those things. So, you know, there was massive, massive investment for that. And, and, and I think that we are, we, we need to, we need to figure out a way to, to do something but you know we don't our our eagles matches are not even um you know even when they when they bring a bunch of people and our eagles matches don't break even so
0: well you know uh, just just real quick real real quick about that It, it i think it's it's how you target it and one of the things that um Back in the early – you know, 2000, late 90s, the Eagles used to play at Boxer Stadium in San Francisco, which is – you know, it's a bare-bones stadium, a nice little field, and one grandstand. They were benches. They were old wooden splintered benches, and then they fixed them. And you could cram – if you had a really good day, you could cram 5,500 people in there. But if you did that and you sold a little bit of beer – you could actually make some money on those games because it was it was a cheap stadium and and you could get people there. Um, when when the management at USA rugby changed, uh, Doug Arnott came in, he wanted bigger events, bigger stadiums. So what he did was he would rent something like Wrenchler Field at the University of Connecticut and which had a capacity I think of, you know, in in the thirties, and five and a half thousand people would show up. <laughs> and so you 've got you 're spending all this extra money on a on a giant venue and you 're still getting the same amount of people you 're going to lose money and I think they 're still trying to balance that out how do you do you go with a small venue but even the small venues capacity of twenty thousand eighteen thousand you you really you 're really pushing it to try to get those people um, uh, get enough people in there to to really turn a profit I, 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 and I haven't seen the numbers I think USA against Ireland in 2009 I would be surprised if they didn't make something off of that because they pretty much filled a fairly small stadium mostly with Irish fans I think they did alright there um, but the problem with those fans is they go to the pub until 30 seconds before kickoff and then stream into the stadium so you're not getting that happy hour income
2: well, I think one well, of the I things that, that think, talked okay. about and kept reiterating was marketability or marketing and, and promotions and PR how much does USA rugby really promote these international games and who are they promoting them to because I think that's something that's sorely lacking there and and, and as Bruce and I have had in pri- talked about in private conversations, it's sorely lacking in club rugby it's uh there's not a whole lot of promotion going on for most of these people if they are it's usually to their own constituencies it's not to the public it's not um you know uh, to to people that you actually need to bring in because there aren't enough just rugby fans in in the world to put three thousand seats in a stadium in ten different cities in the United States but there are enough casual sports fans or people who'd like to go sit outside and drink a beer and watch something crazy happen that you have to market to those people and i don't think I think the missing equation just saying because The Eagles don't draw very many people Then a professional league can't draw very many people. Well, the Eagles don't market, period. And uh, and most of our clubs don't either.
0: The the Eagles don't market, and I've spent a lot of time in Canada um, going going to international games in Canada, and they're terrible about that. There is no indication that – except for a couple of things in the newspaper that there would be a game – Going on an international game going on in Vancouver, but I, you know, I I don't know what the answer is, but but I think where your money starts is getting on sports radio, don't you think? Get, getting well, the, getting getting advertising an- on sports radio, is, getting people know you're around.
1: I, I don't think that that's the answer. Uh, I think that the answer is, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I, I just I I think your bang for your buck would be would not be great. But one of the things that I think is, is critically important is that people have to care.
2: And you also, I think, you know, you look at Glendale, you guys talked earlier about the autograph signing. Glendale does that every game. When they play a game, their guys stick around and they sign autographs. I had to wait after the national championship to do interviews because they're signing autographs for kids. That's phenomenal, and there, there are a lot of people starting to carry themselves professionally, Glendale being you know key among them. Also, obviously, the Utah Warriors uh they're doing, are spending a great deal of money. I mean, their website is by far and away the best that I've seen in American rugby. Um, their, their coach, um, John Law, his sister – now, I'm not going to say he was hired as the coach or made the coach because his sister works for a local TV station. But uh, they got somebody in the organization with connections, and they've been on a local TV station on their morning show numerous, numerous times. And they're getting unprecedented coverage for a club rugby team um, in Utah. And uh, you know they've got, they've got this Warrior Nation thing where they've started, and they're selling merchandise across the country. Now, maybe not in, in, uh, in container loads or by the pallet, but they have people that are starting to pick it up. If you treat yourself like a professional and you act like a professional team instead of acting like a club, I think that you'll find that the media will start cover, it will paying more attention to you. You'll find that it's easier to get on your sports talk radio station, easier to get on. And people need content. They really do. I mean, here in Kansas City, people are vomiting at the thought of talking about Royals at this time of the year. And thank God football's back because there for about three months, there was absolutely nothing to talk about. And there are cities like that across the country.
0: And what does that mean? That means doing what you say you're going to do, showing up on time, returning phone calls, uh, um, being being available for interviews, stuff like that. And even when right. you, even when you lose, and that is something that we've been struggling on this end of it as well. Uh, we've, we've got some other things coming up real, really quick and, uh, right after this show comes out, um, hopefully, uh, we've got the, we, we talked about the national sevens championships and I know we made some picks and I was looking at the picks that we made and I don't think we are going to have too much, uh, uh, difference there, but i uh, looking at the, uh, the pool winners that we'd all picked in our last show. Uh, Pat, you had uh golden gate, Belmont shore, woodland exiles and denver barbarians as your your top four teams that is your pool winners and then likely i guess would be your top four and bruce um i think you had uh utah belmont shore exiles and denver barbarians so really not that different and and i you know in the end i thought i was different but i really wasn't um i had the chicago lions boston and uh The the exiles or Atlanta old white I was hedging on that because I think maybe there's an upset there and then uh, Denver barbarians so uh, I thought
1: I took Golden Gate
0: you you took Golden Gate all right you took I know no I
1: didn't take Golden Gate to win I took Woodlands to win
0: right but you uh, win that pool okay. So the, yeah. I I thought then all right somebody took Utah somebody said Utah was going to win maybe Pat that was Probably I said I, I said I
2: wanted to pick them but there
0: were too many question marks I see and this is why I'm glad glad we're, well, the, the, uh, we're readdressing this there are well here's the thing then do you change your pick Bruce because in your in your comment you said. Um, you were assuming Volney Rouse and Mille Pulu will be on the Golden Gate team, and as a result, you would pick them. Rouse is uh, questionable, and Pulu will not be there because Pulu uh, sipped with East Palo Alto and played in the, the Pacific Championships with East Palo Alto, so he is not eligible to play for Golden Gate. Do you change your pick as a result?
1: Yes. No. Okay. No, I'm comfortable. I'm
0: comfortable on my own. Go, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something. It, that's, I think that's a good move that you don't change a pick, even though I've got Chicago winning that myself, uh, because Golden Gate is very strong without uh, without those guys playing. And Johnny Nagika has, has the guys uh, really working very well. Uh, he's got Danny Barrett back in there. The, the Cal number 8 is back playing with him. And, and uh, um, the uh, Okusi Brothers... A lot of good players on there. Uh, Got a little bit of uh, information on uh, Hawaii. They are a good team. They'll have some good players. Probably their best player is Dustin Umeda, who went to a USA camp and is, by all accounts, uh, having been told at the USA camp, you need to work a little bit harder and be fitter and stronger. He's taken that. Completely to heart and is looking amazing. So I would I would hope that even though I don't think Hawaii is going to go uh, make make the semifinals, um, I think I think people will be talking about Dustin Nemeida being uh, being a really good prospect. So look for that this weekend. Uh, also this weekend, the United States men's national team plays Canada, and the United States women's national team also plays Canada in the Nations Cup. Uh, so um, I actually want and, and this is a bit of a surprise because you guys didn 't think you were talking about the women but i want I want to pick from uh both of you guys on both games so the the women play on on Friday and the uh, the men play on saturday and and give me a pick on this game as to how you think they 'll go I
1: think the women will win i think the men will win i think um, that uh, i think that I think that the I mean, I I know some of the women, I don't know all of them. I've seen some of their comments on Facebook. They seem to be pretty psyched to be involved and pretty psyched to to be part of it and and pretty ready for it, and I think it's going to be an interesting time, and I think they'll win. Uh, As far as the men, I think that while Canada had a a really good Churchill Cup, I do think that there's there's a a few places where they can be targeted. I think the USA has a a much bigger back row, and I think they'll be able to target them in the lineup and possibly pick a few balls there. Uh, I don't think that the Canadians have a scrum that is any better than the United States. I, I don't think it's any good. And, and where the U.S. can get into trouble is if they kick the ball down Canada's throat and expect to expect to uh, that Canada has a great counterattacking game. Canada also plays very loose; they're, they're willing to offload quite a bit. And I think that the uh, I think that what the United States has to do is really dominate them in the contact area and really beat the snot out of them in there. And I think that if they do that and they take that to heart. That they'll be able to beat the teams. I don't think. I, well, I think Canada played well. I don't think they're that good. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I think that they they have played well and they played extremely well against the Saxons. And if the USA, their downfall is going to be a game plan, and 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 hopefully they they can dominate the contact and, and kind of win almost win in spite of themselves. And I, and I think that uh, that they're going to have to really look at using their, their scrum half, who's, who's hopefully country, to to create some kind of opportunities around the fringes of the rucks. But if we keep on just, you know, move the ball into one channel, they're going to, you know, then they'll lead us alive. Then they'll do exactly what we, what they did to England, just push, push, flood the zone, destroy the contact area, push, push, flood the zone. But, um, but I, I think that if, if the United States gets a little bit sensible, I think that they'll win that game. I think they're a better team. I think they'll win the game.
2: Um, easy, quick one for me, for the women is, is the United States, because if I pretend to know much about Canada, I would be completely lying. So I'm just going to go with the blind patriotism and and pick the Lady Eagles. Um, for the men, uh, we haven't seen the selections yet for who's going to play, who's going to start. We haven't seen the 22 man roster. Uh, so it's a little bit of a guess for me because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that, we might see some of the continuing um, types of selections as far as not selecting necessarily to put your best 20 or 15 on the field and your best 22 out there, but selecting to mix things up and continue to see, do some experimenting. I think that there's a chance of that. And that, that scares me a little bit. It also scares me that we're two and six against Canada in the last eight games and that aggregate scores aren't even close. We beat them, you know, 12, six to the qualifier um, in the World Cup qualification process. And then they turn around and hammer us by, I think 30-plus points that next game. Um, That scares me as well. Um, The the fact that Canada played well in the Churchill Cup scares me. I want to pick the Eagles, but I can't. I'm going to have to pick Canada for all those factors combined. And the fact that it is in Canada, I think that matters a little bit. Um, But, you know, if he makes the right selections, he puts a a strong 15 out there in certain spots, it it doesn't surprise me. I definitely think it's a pick I don't think there's a – I don't think that there should be a line or any points given to either team. It's, it's, it's a pick them and the, if the Eagles put the right team out there, they can win. But knowing what I do or do not know now, I'm going to have to pick Canada.
0: Uh, talk, looking at the women's uh, matchup, first of all, and it, it, the last few years what seems to have ha- been happening is that, uh, to me anyway, is that building up to a major competition, Canada looks the better team. They are more physical. They've got some more dangerous players. But then you have something happen like the uh, fifth, sixth game at the World Cup where the USA comes out on top. Close, very, very close, but the USA comes out on top. And you think, how did that happen? And I think that it's, it's a lesson about if we can get – all we need to do now most of the time is get our players together and in a singular uh, singularity of purpose – and they will perform, and they will play great, and, and, and they'll produce the results. We just continue to fail to do that because of turnaround in coaches or problems of money or, or uh, you know, just all these different things that happen for some reason uh, undercut them. The, the Canadian uh, lineup, the women's lineup, is is very strong they have some excellent players they have some excellent players up front the usa lineup has some good players but uh and and I'm a little concerned about size and power up front uh in the in the front row but overall the usa scrum was excellent in the World cup and there's there's really not that much change and Jamie Burke is on that team and if jamie Burke you know I'll put my money behind Jamie Burke any day of the week. Uh, i 'm a little concerned about the uh, the backs because there are a bunch of backs in there who are not particularly uh, experienced. Uh, in, in international rugby, so I wonder if they'll be able to handle the pace and the physicality and the just uncompromising nature of an international game because it's a huge jump for these women. But I, I have a lot of faith in Pete Steinberg. Pete Steinberg is able to, was able to do that with his players, especially at Penn State, get them to play at a championship level. He knows how to prepare someone and communicate to someone that the uh, this – Level needs to be played, and I think he's also he's put his faith behind Sadie Anderson at uh, at fly half. I think that's a wonderful move, and I and I think um, you know okay, Penn State player. I don't care, she's still great, and uh, um, I think it's I think it's a it's a bit of an experiment USA team, and I think it's not as much of an experiment Canada team played in Canada in Ontario uh, in in Chatham Ontario. So I would. I would probably lean to Canada on that, but I don't really want to. And, and I guess I feel the same way about the men. You you asked, Pat, about who are they, they going to play, What's their starting lineup will be. I I can almost guarantee that Hayden Smith and Chris Wiles, uh, probably J.J. Gayano, Mike McDonald, uh, those guys will all be in the lineup, and Taku and Gwenya because they haven't been in the lineup much or, or at all. So far this year. So he's going to put a lot of those guys in there. But we may also see some experiments. So we may see, we may see Junior Sifa at inside center or outside. We may see Robbie Shaw come in as a sub on, uh, on scrum half. We may see Troy Hall. Um, I don't think he's going to start at fly half, but I think we're going to see these people. So he's still tinkering. And because he's still tinkering, and I don't think Canada is tinkering. I think Canada has what they have, and they're going to play the way they play, that I think Canada is going to win. I think that if they
1: I think they're not gonna tinker, it'd be kinda it'd be kinda crazy. Uh they do so have that game against Glendale on midweek and I think that anything that they do that's kinda that's kinda out of the ordinary they'll do it in that game, they're not gonna do it the uh they're not gonna do it the um at this game. That's my that's my take
0: on it. Oh, oh okay, okay. That, that <laughs> could knows, well that could be, well be true, but there are going to have to be changes because, of course, they're bringing in some of those pros who got some time off. So I I, oh, I, still, no, I, I still wonder I about the I still wonder about the unity aspect. Is uh, hey you know, bro? I've been
1: wondering about the unity aspect since they've been doing selections. I, yeah, I, I they have baffled me time and time again. Uh, baffled me. Unbelievably, Hopefully they work this thing out. I'll be honest with you. They better pick their best team three times in a row. They're going into a World Cup, and, and they better figure out who their team is. The Prepare
2: to be disappointed is all I, I got. I, 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 <laughs> I, look, I
1: understand. Hey, I, hey look, I, you know, just because I say to do something doesn't mean it's going to get done. Um, and, and, and who am I to talk? But the bottom line is, as far as I've seen, the results haven't been good. You know, you sit and say, we well, won ranking sets against who? And any game that's been big, we haven't won, we haven't played well. So, you know, outside of the first test against Canada in the qualification, that's the only time they played reasonably well, and they didn't convert pressure on the points. I think they won 12-6. So, we have to do something else. And, and bottom line is, you know, we'll see who's who, we'll see who's gonna play. But, uh, I, I, a lot of it has to do with selection and game plan. And, and right now, you know, it's crunch time. You got a month to go. Selection and game plan's gotta be done.
0: I think that uh if if this game is close, uh, and Canada wins, I'm going to pick the USA to win the next one. But uh, it, it there will be uh, there, there's still so many questions about uh numbers uh 11 through 14 and there's still so many questions about exactly what combination of second row back row you use and uh you know the the guys like um third hooker Brian McClanahan Third scrum half, uh, Robbie Shore, Shaw, sorry, uh, backup, potential backup fly halves like Troy Hall or Roland Suniula, um, and then people on the wings such as uh, um, Tyanosa or Colin Hawley. All of those guys are still going to be tested in some way. Pat Danahy in the back row is another guy, Cameron Dolan. Uh, those guys dude, are going to be tested, dude, and, and you, may, right. you may be no, Alex, can I ask you? I, I hate...
1: I hate to do this. If he doesn't know the answer now, he's never going to know it because anyone who watched the games knows the answer.
0: I understand that. But, but so, there are a few of them that maybe you don't know the answer because you don't know, for example, is Junior Sifa back from, uh, from injury enough and does he, how does he look and something like that. But I think, I do think that if somebody is in this 36, they will get game time somewhere. I think you're probably right. The best place to do it is in that midweek game against Glendale on August 10th, 7 p.m. at Infinity Park. So if you're in the Denver area, you should go to that. I think it'd be interesting. But uh, after that, I do I I do expect to see something happen, say, in the last 20 minutes against Canada, Um, you know, regardless of the score, I could see. I could see somebody like Troy Hall or Roland Suliula put in at fly half. And regardless of the score, I could see a change at, at scrum half and, and a few more changes around in the second row and back row. You just promoted that game,
2: by the way, more than USA Rugby, Will. So yeah, congratulations.
0: All right. Well, that, I think that does it for this uh, episode of Rugby of Matrix America. Guys, uh, a little bit of a different kind of show because we talk to a soccer guy most of the time, but it was, uh, it was educational educational to say the least and and thanks again to to bud uh
2: for coming on i'm sure i'll hear an earful uh this wednesday when i go to pretend to play volleyball but definitely definitely worth talking to that guy and i think that uh, and i hope that people will get a lot out of it
1: well i'd like to thank bud too and in about an hour i'm going to be thanking a lot of bud lights so have a good week everybody all
0: right thanks a lot thanks a lot guys thank you very much to brian budzinski from kansas city uh, who t- uh, told us the ins and outs of how to put together a – or how he put together a niche sport franchise. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget uh, the USA 7s is coming up fast approaching in February 2012 in Las Vegas. Go to USA7s.com to see the number one international rugby event in the United States. back once again and some pretty exciting news coming up I think for the uh, the entire IRB series uh, soon so so look for that on rugbymag.com and this is Alex Goff from rugbymag.com saying thank you for listening to Rugger Matrix America